Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder. You know, we're going to be talking about uh, building, scaling, you know, financing, you know, even exiting, you know, some of the good stuff that uh, that we like to hear. And the founder today is quite inspiring. So I think that you're all going to really enjoy the conversation and then also his journey as an entrepreneur. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tom Greenwood. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alejandro. How are you? I hope I can live up to the hype. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. So, so give us a, give us a walk through memory lane here. You were raised in New Zealand, Australia. So, how was life growing up? Yeah, it was great. Um, so, I was uh, raised in uh, Wellington, in New Zealand, and uh, did my junior school education there. My family then moved to uh, Australia. Uh, my father was involved in the Sunrise era of the computing industry uh, in the eighties, and um, uh, so he, he used to travel quite a bit for work. Uh, so I did my senior school and tertiary education in Melbourne. Um, so yeah, I grew up on the beach, surfing um, on the weekends and school holidays. And yeah, I mean, Australia is a great place. So had a lot of fun. But um, yeah, came across to London in 2002. So let's say, let's talk about getting into the um, professional side of things, you know, because your first role, you know, was pretty much in sales. I mean, obviously, you know, in your case, you studied, you know, in uh, in Swissburn and what you did is business and marketing. But, you know, the first gig that you did was um, in sales. So tell us about the the early years in your professional career. Yeah, my first job in financial services was with ANZ Bank in Melbourne. Um, and I was in a telesales role there, um, just selling pretty typical banking products, um, um, you know, accounts and loans and uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, I think my first uh, meaningful role, uh, not that it wasn't meaningful, but my first more senior role, let's say, in financial services was when I was in London and I was approached by an American business called AFAX or Associated Foreign Exchange that had been established in California since, I think, 1979. Um, and they were a team of about 35 people across the US. But um, I was approached and asked to be their founding employee for Europe. Um, and to establish, as I guess, effective head of sales, um, their first European office here in London. Um, and we did that well um, and built up the team. I then became uh, the GM of uh, Europe in that role. Um, and we executed on that really well. So Apex was in the business of uh, treasury management and uh, risk mitigation with respect to currency fluctuations. Um, working with airlines that might be hedging oil prices or pharmaceutical companies that are doing a lot of important exports or other businesses that are involved in cross-border trade and um, putting uh, FX strategies in place with their treasurers and with their financial leaders to uh, make sure that that risk is managed from um, an effective standpoint. So that was a couple of years, um, and I was then... And what, what, one thing there real quick, Tom, is because as you were talking about the strategy and execution, one of the things that you did there that uh, worked out pretty well was the head hunting strategy. So tell us about what you did there with that. Yeah, well, this was back in 2003, 4 and the, the concept of head hunting at that point in time wasn't 
anywhere near as prevalent as it is today. And in fact, when I, I remember when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, that's interesting. So you can just go and hunt the best people in the industry. Um, and that, that made a lot of sense to me. So I was working with a consultant um, who had approached me with a strategy and I thought it was a great idea. Um, and so, yeah, we were, as, as, as I can recall, it was a long time ago, right? It was 20 years ago. So I, I don't want to um, make any false claims, but w- what, what I do remember feeling was, oh, that's a new strategy. I've never heard of that before. And we were doing it. Nobody else was. And it, it, was, it was really effective. And we succeeded in attracting the best of the best from our competitors um, to our business. And uh, Apex then became a market leader off the back of that. Um, so I'm not by any means saying I was the first or only person to do that at that point in time, but I do remember feeling at the time that what we were doing was different and it certainly wasn't commonplace. Um, uh, so, yeah, that was uh, a successful strategy and execution for that business at that time. And then 2005 comes along and that's when uh, basically un- the entrepreneurial side of things, you know, comes knocking. You know, what happened there with IFX, which was your first venture? Yeah, well, I guess being the first man in the door at Apex, um, although it wasn't my business and uh, it wasn't uh, my baby in that respect, I-, I was building it from the ground up. And I had done that, obviously, with good leaders and mentors around me um, who had more experience than I did. But um, I had kind of done it. You know, we built the team up to 35, 40 people, as I recall. Um, and I thought, well, hey, that was cool. Um, why don't I do it for myself? And so, yeah, that's when Apex uh, gave way to uh, the first company that I founded, which is called IFX, uh, now IFX Payments. And uh, we were following a similar path to Apex before us, which was um, NFX and treasury management, at least initially. Now, one of the things that uh, that happened there uh, is that you were able to recognize embedded finance. Why would you say that uh, it was so transformative to the business? I mean, obviously, you know, we got we got to remember that you pushed this from 2005 to 2018, and and back then fintech was not even a thing. So, uh, how how was it like, you know, at that point, and how were you able to recognize, you know, embedded finance? Yeah, well, you're giving my age away a little bit here. Yeah, I, I predate fintech, which is, I guess, something I should be proud of, but not necessarily. Um, but yeah, no, 2005 fintech didn't even exist. Um, uh, so we were very much in the FX and treasury space. It was. 2013 or 2014, um, uh, where uh, IFX became one of the first e-money institutions to ever be regulated in Europe. Um, And as an e-money license holder in Europe, you're able to issue payment accounts and bank accounts. Um, And uh, I saw uh, a real opportunity there to build a new product, which has really become... um, you know, it really quite transformed IFX's business model and is responsible for a very high proportion of their revenue and, and payments volume today. Um, and I was actually on a flight uh, from Dubai to London, and uh, I was flying up from Australia. So I had slept on the first leg uh, between Sydney and uh, Dubai, and it was the middle of the night. Everyone was asleep in the cabin, and I was a wide awake, of course, because I was traveling through time zones. And um, I was chatting on Skype uh, with a, a good friend of mine and someone that I worked with at IFX. Um, and we kind of, during that chat, uh, we were bouncing a few ideas back and forth with, you know, hang on, if you can build a payments API 
and you can build an FX API, and then you can issue bank accounts. If you put those strings together, doesn't that become a, a, a kind of a form of payments bank? And it was literally as I was working off the flights that I called uh, my banker at Barclays at the time to just validate what we had kind of pieced together in my mind. And um, this chap uh, said, yeah, we can do that. And that was when the whole kind of solution started to piece together. And I'm like, well, okay, that's interesting. You know, you can kind of piece uh, payments, FX, and banking and, and a whole lot of automation together into one platform. And that's bound to be transformative, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, I guess, where my skills are probably uh, pretty strong when it comes to kind of, um, I'm both commercial, but I'm also very strong on the, on the product side and kind of solutioning and putting things together in a logical framework and order. That's, I think, being one of the foundations of my success. Yeah, and that's what, uh, that's what we did there. And uh, it led to good things. In that case, you know, I mean, you're you're actually, you know, since you allude to that, you're very commercial, but then also very strong when it comes to product strategy. I mean, how do you how do you think typically about product, and how do you blend it with a strategy? Well, it usually starts with a very simple idea. If I could use Faults as an example, I was the chief operating officer of IFX at the time that PSD two or the Payment Services Directive two in Europe was being published and. Um, issued. And so I was reviewing PSD2 from the perspective of um, regulatory compliance in my role at IFX as the chief operating officer there. Um, and in reading about it, I read about open banking payments and I read about real-time payments. And I'm like, well, that's got to be transformative. Like if we are working with... Um, a card network or payment scheme that has been around for many, many years and it takes many days and there's many intermediaries involved in getting money from one place to another. Um, this, this idea of an API call into an account-based payment instrument so that you can just move money in real time directly from one bank account to whom it is you're wanting to send it. I guess the thought was, if that had been possible when they were designing the Visa MasterCard schemes in 1950s and 1960s, isn't that the way the payments should always have been? Like, why, why are we paying with these archaic instruments that takes three, four, five days for money to get to its destination and involves four, five, or six intermediaries in getting there when in seconds you can move money from account to account? So that was a simple embryonic thought, you know, around Vault and obviously um, open banking and the rise of real-time payments today is very prevalent and um, with Fed now launching in the US with the Clearinghouse RTP, but other examples of PIX in Brazil, the unified payment interface in India, open banking in Europe. There are 74 countries around the world now rolling this out. But for me, back in 2017, when I was reading about this, it wasn't prevalent then. It was just this thought of that's that's got to be disruptive. And it, it, it really just started there. And then from there, I tend to go very deep uh, in terms of, feasibility, the what ifs, the how, why is this important? What are we what, what problem are we solving and who are we solving it for? You know? Um so I did that for a, a good few months, maybe a year. Um and then from that I couldn't let go of the idea, so I decided to leave IFX instead of that. And before before that, you know, quickly, I mean IFX uh actually you guys decided to grow that organically, you know, for for so many years. Uh I guess what drove that decision? 
you know, the company ended up being acquired, but, uh, you know, not going, you know, with external money obviously adds as well a certain amount of layer of risk because you're like walking on a thin line. Yeah, well, it started uh, with me and a chap called Nick Williams, uh, my co-founder, sitting in a barn uh, that his father owned uh, about 30 miles outside of uh, London on Shadlow's farm. And um, we got a couple of uh, laptop computers and a couple of phones and um, we just got on the phone and started selling. Um, it was it was truly organic and, and very humble beginnings for the business. Um, we had a feed of, of, of uh, you know, Bloomberg television from his parents' house. And at lunchtime, when his mum would watch Coronation Street, we'd be, on, we'd be on calls and Coronation Street would come on, you know. So it was, uh, it was very, very authentic the way we started. And we, we managed to build a, a successful business and, and good profitability. And we, we used that profitability to continue to grow the company. Um, the company now turns over more than $10 billion a year. It operates in six or seven countries across uh, Europe and the Middle East um, and is a success story. But we grew that business organically and using our own money over a long period of time. Um, we sold the business a couple of years ago for uh, a couple hundred million dollars and uh, had a good exit. Um, and, uh, yeah, very happy with the outcome there. But, um, yeah, it was... Uh, it was it was very much a grassroots journey, and I think there's a lot of lessons from that that I learned. Um, you know, coming from that sort of background into the role that I'm now in, which is CEO of a reasonably high or growing profile um, fintech in Europe, um, which is backed by some big VCs. It's it's been a steep learning curve for me over the last three years. You know, uh, there's been a lot of things that I hadn't expected, and um, a different way of operating to, to, to how it was before at IFX, but I've embraced it and enjoyed it. And enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, it's certainly very different to um, building it from, from the organic place that uh, IFX came from. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. 
So while you were, you know, basically uh, part of the IFX, you know, team, I mean, you were a founder there. You guys were pushing it for so long. Ultimately, the idea of Vault uh, comes knocking. And I'm sure it was not an easy, uh, you know, um, decision to make, you know, which was to leave the company that you had founded and then to start something new and, and, and venture into the unknown once again. So how was that decision, um, that thought process? How did that come along? And, and at what point did it, did it become so real to you and so clear that you had to leave to, to go after this new company? Um, yeah, um, the, I think I was ready, you know, I, I'd been in the business for 15 years and, um, I was excited to get back to the cut and thrust of startup life and to, to really take on a new challenge. But moreover, it was about the potential of the opportunity that Vault represented to disrupt, you know, Visa MasterCard, to disrupt the legacy payment infrastructure that is, you know, remarkable and uh, hugely impressive what Visa MasterCard have built and you know, I have nothing but admiration and respect for the teams and for those businesses and what they've done. But you can't get away from the fact that the technology was designed in the 1950s and 60s and first implemented in the 1960s. And in 2023, 24, it is fundamentally the same as it was when the first US bank launched a charge card in 1966. It is the same architecture and the same rails effectively that those card payments run across. and. What we are witnessing with the rise of real-time payments is those tectonic plates shifting and the rise of a new paradigm in real-time direct account-to-account payments, which is unquestionably, in my mind, the future of how money moves. And um, Vault is taking on that challenge, right? And you know, we are very alive to the challenge and to the mountain that we have set ourselves uh, to climb, but we've... Um, we're excited by it and we're looking forward to the next challenge and we're learning every day and we're growing as a team and growing as individuals and um, having fun so far. So while sec continues, we'll keep on going. So for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Vault? How do you guys make money? We are concerned with real-time value exchange and the future of how many moves. And um, that is represented by a collection of uh, domestic real-time account-to-account payment infrastructures around the world. So where historically Visa MasterCard have provided a single platform and a proprietary network, which is centrally controlled and privately owned, governments and central banks around the world increasingly have a sovereign perspective with respect to payments. With all due respect to uh, Visa and MasterCard, they no longer want to be reliant on an external platform or to an American infrastructure, they consider payments to be integral to their economies and their societies. And they want a next-gen payment system that is um, owned and operated um, in their markets. So that's why you see PIX in Brazil, which is an outstanding success, which is a Brazilian next-gen real-time payments platform owned by Brazil, built for Brazil to operate in Brazil. The same applies with UPI in India. The same applies with what the Fed are doing in America currently, with FedNow or the Clearinghouse uh, with um, the RTP solution, um, open banking in Europe. And so one of the challenges that we saw there is, well, if real-time payments does represent the future of payments, no longer is there a single proprietary network. And um, all of these payment systems are inherently domestic. 
And therefore, on a global scale, they are fragmented. And that fragmentation, as we see it, is both a challenge and an opportunity. And so what we are building at Vault is we are harmonizing next-gen real-time accounts account payment systems to a single infrastructure, to a single point of access, and to a single protocol to make them accessible and interoperable. And um, by harmonizing these networks together, uh, we deliver a network of networks that is the first or one of the world's first global uh, real-time payments infrastructures. So how do we make money? Um, the biggest merchants and the biggest businesses you know, globally are all very excited about, well, the ones that I speak to anyway, are, are all very excited about the rise of this next generation payment infrastructure. And with Vault, through a single integration, you're once and done. Uh, you can connect once and then you can communicate um, with the world of real-time payments around the world. So we have a number of go-to-market strategies. We speak directly to the largest enterprise merchants in the world, of course. Um, but our main revenue drive or go-to-market strategy is by way of partners. So we work with WorldPay, uh, the world's largest merchant acquirer. We are their uh, partner for real-time payments and open banking around the world. We work with Worldline, um, and we work with uh, many other uh, PSPs or technical gateways, um, they white label our solution effectively to then be able to offer uh, real-time account account payments to their underlying merchants. Um, we also work with the shopping carts. So we're on Shopify, WooCommerce. Um, but yeah, uh, real-time payments is going to increasingly take share from Visa and MasterCard and harmonizing and operationalizing that infrastructure at scale is uh, what we've set ourselves to do. So thinking about this as at scale, I mean, with your previous company, with IFX, you guys, you know, really didn't raise much. I mean, it was pretty much organic the way that you go, that you went about it. Why with Vault yeah. did you decide, why, why, why then with Vault? Why then with Vault did you decide to raise money? Because the opportunity for real-time payments is now, you know, and you've got to, you've got to be able to move fast enough to capture the market opportunity. Um, whereas if you're relying on your own growth and profitability in, in order to scale, um, you're simply just not going to be able to move fast enough, right? Um, there is a market opportunity today, which is present today, and you've got to, um, yeah, as I said, move fast enough to capture it. So how much capital have you guys raised to date for Vault? Um, $83.5 million so far. Um, we closed our Series B about three or four months ago, which was led by IVP, um, a uh, significant venture firm from the Valley in San Francisco. Um, and uh, yeah, um, prior to that, it was our Series A led by EQT, which we closed, I think, in June of 2021. Um, but we've got other partners in Commerce Ventures, Augmentum Fintech, and uh, Fuel Ventures also. And what was the journey like of raising, you know, those financing rounds? Because obviously it was your first time, you know, getting out there and getting external people. So how did you go about it and how did you make sure that you did it right? Yeah, well, it was interesting, you know, because it was my first entry into the land of venture capital. And I joined at a pretty interesting time for venture capital itself. You know, in 2020, 2021, there was an oversupply of liquidity in the market and prices were 100x, you know, so... When we got to the Series A and we were not quite pre-revenue, but not not farther off, and we were getting a you know ninety million, hundred million dollar valuation at that point, that wasn't coming from my background. You can imagine that was a bit of an eyebrow raiser for me. I mean, one that I liked, obviously, because um, it gave us the capital to really 
fuel our growth, but there was a, a crazy time for ventures and there was a crazy time for uh, valuations. And that's right when I was getting started. So that was, uh, that was a pretty interesting journey. Um, of course, during the journey of my Series A, we went from, you know, a narrative of spend, 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 let's grow, let's grow, let's grow to the market kind of falling in a heap and everyone pulling the brakes on and needing to slow down again. So we've had to be adaptable, but, you know, I, I've been working with uh, Jordan Lawrence and Stefan Follett, who are my co-founders on this one, um, for four, four and a half years now. And, um, I think, you know, we, we've got a, we've got a great team as founders. We keep each other honest and we challenge one another, but we, we also have a, very strong culture across the organization where that should not just be between founders, but it should be between all people within the organization. And yeah, I mean, we, we don't have all the answers. We're getting more things right than we're getting wrong at the moment. And um, it's a one step at a time thing. Like the transformation of this payments infrastructure is not going to be a three or four year journey. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, we're very early on. So there's a long way to go, but we're happy so far. And in your case, I mean, you guys, you know, we're talking about people here, we're talking about investors, you know, just saying to expand on this. I mean, you guys have about 180 people now. You're looking to add another 60. I guess the question here that comes to mind is when you're growing so quickly, how do you go about building processes so that uh, things don't break? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we two years ago, I think it was, were a team of 28 or 30 people. Um, so there's a couple of lessons in this for me and that at each kind of stage, the company feels different and it moves from stage to stage quite quickly when you're scaling like, uh, we are, um, every six months or so, you know, I've got to reflect and be very honest with myself about what is my role for the company. Now we're 90 people. Is it the same as my role was for the company when we were 30 people? The answer to that question is no, you know, and, and the, the, the same question then occurs to you at 150 people, um, you know, is my role the same and is my contribution, what the company needs from me as a leader and a CEO, is it the same at 150 people as it was for 90 people? So having that very honest conversation with yourself, but also with your investment partners and learning from them um, and, you know, growing as an individual as the company grows has been my personal challenge and, you know, part of the journey that I've um, been working through. But as a company, um, you know, the larger it gets, there's a sense in which it becomes less about me or any individual within the business. It's less about the entrepreneur and it's more about, you know, the structures and the teams and the processes that you build so that the organization can scale effectively. Um, you can't be on every call. You can't be in every interview process, nor is it appropriate or scalable that you should be. So it's about building, you know, quality uh, into processes and being much more structured in your approach. And there's some of the growing pains that we're going through right now. Um, and I, I use that term loosely, growing pains, but it's just a maturing and a broadening of the foundations of the business so that you can build a taller tower, you know, and it's no longer about me or any one individual in the team. It's, it's much more about the company and its, its structures and being really thoughtful about um, how that all kind of comes together. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's all part of the fun. And as you're thinking about team, thinking about investors too, I mean, we got to think about vision. So as we're thinking about vision here, let's say you were to go to sleep tonight, Tom, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Vault is fully realized. What does that world look like? 
Yeah, I think uh, I think it's I think it's equally interesting to see what's happening with regulation around stable coins, and there's a lot of discussion taking place around central bank digital currencies. Um, one thing that uh, we're less public about at the moment is that you know Vault's ambitions are beyond open banking, and that's you know we feel like at the moment with real-time accounts and account payments that we're addressing the addressable. Um, but I'm equally interested in what's happening with stable coins and CBDCs. And um, there is a new dawn coming for crypto, it seems, where uh, there will be a new rubber stamped and regulated uh, stable coin markets. Um, you've seen the moves of JP Morgan and Citi in the last couple of weeks uh, launching their crypto infrastructure. And going back to something that I said earlier, if Vault is concerned with real-time value exchange and the future of how money moves, we must be network agnostic, right? And so we are connecting the world of real-time account-to-account payments at the moment in fiat. Um, but does that involve potentially the integration of uh, regulated stable coins or CBDCs in due course? Um, I can't see why not. But at the same time, I'm not making any promises. But the, the way things are shaping... The future of payments and the future of how money moves appears to be shaping as some collaboration or combination between correspondent banking and RTP networks together with regulated stablecoins, together with CBDCs. How that shapes and how that comes together, I don't think anybody knows. And I think if someone is saying that they do know, I would um, challenge them. But um, it's absolutely a transformative time um, to be in payments. Uh, Visa and MasterCard have served us very well over the last 70 years, but their technology is unable to affect real-time value exchange. And, you know, the world of payments is changing. How payments have been over the last 70 years, it's going to be extremely different to how we understand and see them 15 years from now. So it's a great time to be alive. It's an exciting time to be part of it. Um, but, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of change coming up ahead. And what, what we want to do is stay open-minded and stay agile and um, – be really honest about um, where the opportunities are and make sure that we're um, taking on the right challenges and, um, you know, working together to deliver great outcomes. So we're talking about the future here, Tom. So I want to talk about the past now and do so with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back to 2005, to that moment where you were thinking about making the jump you know, taking the leap of faith from AFEX. Uh, and, you know, you perhaps at this point, you didn't even know that it would become IFX. But let's say you had the opportunity of having a sit down, you know, with that younger self, with that younger Tom. And you were able to give that younger Tom one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think the thing that is most important is to surround yourself with really smart people. Um, there's that old adage, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I, I believe that. And to be really thoughtful and pragmatic about what you're doing and why. What problems are you solving? Who are you solving for? And, and why is that important? Um, young entrepreneurs are often trying to solve very complex problems in their minds. Most businesses that are remarkable start from pretty simple concepts and you, you've always got to keep your customer in the center of your mind. Um, and it's not complexity that is the key 
to most solutions I find or businesses that I've been part of, it's it's much more simplicity and customer centricity. So don't overcomplicate it. Be thoughtful. Be pragmatic. Make sure you get the right advice. And then with conviction, go for it, right? If you don't believe in yourself, nobody else is going to believe in you. Back yourself and, you know, jump in and get stuck in. Um, I don't know if that's one bit of advice or 10 bits of advice, but yeah, I guess that's kind of the speech that I probably would have given to my younger self if I had the opportunity to be Michael J. Fox and go back in time. That's very, very profound, Tom. So now for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, LinkedIn or my email address is Tom at Bolt.io. Um, so yeah, feel free to reach out anytime. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, hey, Tom, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks for having me, man. Good to see you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.